when I first went to the Soviet Union, uh, you know, churches were virtually closed. If you wanted to go to a service, you had to get a special ticket. Really? The police controlled. <laughs> I mean, it was really a big deal. In the Brezhnev area? Right? Yeah, Brezhnev. yeah. And now, of course, if you don't go, you're in real trouble because you've got to show... You get a ticket. It's, 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 it's replaced the Communist Party ideology. It used to be one that just switched one for the other. Right. It's a lot. One of my board members called uh, Putin's Russia Soviet Union light. <laughs> You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to The Slavic Connection. I'm here with uh, Dr. Mark Palmer. Dr. Mark Palmer is joining us from the Clement Center at the University of Texas. Um, I'll give you a little background. You know your own background, but I'll I let do. the audience know <laughs> as well. Um, started out at Tufts University in Boston, graduated um, with a PhD from Columbia, then made your way as a lecturer in Vermont, went across the pond, working at Radio Free Europe, a couple of foundations afterwards, um, dealing with public policy, uh, civics, economics, and now you find yourself at the U.S. Well, you find yourself at the University of Texas, but formerly at the U.S. Russia Foundation. How many mistakes have I made so far? Uh, you've done pretty well. <laughs> uh, the only thing I would add is that from '82 or from '83 to '93, I was a federal employee. So I okay. was in the U.S. Gotcha. government, Voice of America, and then I headed something called Board for International Broadcasting, which was the oversight agency that oversaw okay. all the broadcasting. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for yeah. joining us. Um, so hoping to touch on a number of topics. First question, actually, virtue of Matt Orr, who you spoke with yesterday, is actually about Radio Free Europe. Um, so you were gone by the time the USSR fell. Um, we were wondering sort of what was the ideological bent of Radio Free Europe. They sort of accomplished their entire mission, or maybe their mission was accomplished passively. What was sort of the ideological bend of the organization following the collapse? Um well, let's say what was its mission before the collapse? Sure. Maybe it would be good to. It was conceived as a surrogate radio station, mm -hmm. meaning the idea behind it was very different from Voice of America or BBC, which were the voices of a particular country, particular sure. culture. The idea behind Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, was that they would be the free voice of the people to whom they were broadcasting. Right. So, in a sense, you had a Polish service, which was. Polish radio as if it were in Warsaw, but it happened to be physically in Munich gotcha. or the Czech Republic or Hungary or Russia. So in that sense, the mission obviously was completed and many of the services closed. Mm -hmm. Polish, the countries that entered NATO, obviously they closed those services. There are, there's no radio free Poland. There's yeah. no radio free Czech Republic. As a matter of fact, the radios moved from Munich to Prague because Václav Havel presented that for free as a gift to the radios for making the Czech Republic <laughs> free. And it was uh, no cost, the best place in town. We honor you and we want you. The president of Estonia, Leonard Mary in 92, mm -hmm. Estonian service closed, uh, nominated Radio Free Europe for the Nobel Peace Prize. So there was a sense of tremendous triumph mm -hmm. that this had come to a happier end than people expected. In the case of Radio Liberty, things are a little bit trickier, but we celebrated the 40th anniversary of Radio Liberty in Moscow in March of 1993 with Gorbachev attending, with one of Yeltsin's senior people attending, with the who's who of the Russian intellectual, cultural elite coming. 
uh, very famous uh, bard, uh, Bulat Akudrava, not only came, not only sang, but composed a song in honor <laughs> of Radio Liberty on the occasion of its 40th anniversary. So that was triumphant. Uh, from a personal point of view, I left shortly thereafter and went on to do other things. Mm -hmm. The idea behind maintaining Radio Liberty was that uh, radio in Russia at that time, they were trying to build up independent radio stations. And Radio Liberty, in a sense, during the 90s, served as a feeder. They couldn't afford to do news. They couldn't afford to have correspondence. Okay. So in a sense, Radio Liberty was kind of a crutch that they could rely on mm -hmm. and could for free get the news at, you know, on the hour for five minutes or some other segments or something about the United States or something about Europe, which they could not afford. And the idea was that as Russian media would develop, strengthen, have commercial and non-commercial, that the radios would fade. In other words, it was on a now, of course, politically, things changed and those radio stations never made it. That Many of them were closed. And so Radio Liberty finds itself now only doing television, mm -hmm. only doing a few hours a day and out of Prague. And the idea being that because you now have state controlled media in Russia, there is a need and interest in an alternative voice. Right. And do you see sort of the current state of Russian media developing out of that vacuum, or do you think it was sort of inevitable from the depths that they had to come out of that sort of state-controlled media was the only way to get a hold of sort of a runaway civics nightmare? Well, there was in the 90s some really good private TV and radio stations mm -hmm. and newspapers and, and outlying areas of Russia. Uh, some of them still struggle to exist, very small scale, uh, at the U.S.-Russia Foundation, we actually gave a grant to uh, one of the few independent TV stations, I think in Yekaterinburg, if I'm not mistaken, to do a series of programs on economics issues and so sure. forth. But uh, for the most part there, that's gone. And you mm -hmm. are back to what you had the Soviet Union, which is Channel One and Russia TV and then a few others. And basically you have control over over that. Gotcha. And so I know your foundation is not built to upset the state-controlled media in Russia directly. Um, I mean, walk us through sort of how you're communicating with the youth, what the kind of your engagement with small businesses is, and kind of the... Well, if you want me to say a few words about the U.S.-Russia Foundation, it sure. has many different phases. But right. really to understand it, one has to go back a bit in history. Uh, at the very end of the Bush senior administration, the very beginning of the Clinton administration, there was a very innovative program that was approved by Congress that created enterprise funds, I mean, real money, mm -hmm. to invest in the economies of the former East Bloc with the idea that through investment in small and medium-sized business, you could do training and you would jumpstart the private sector economy. Right. So there was a Polish fund, there was a Czech fund, there was a Hungarian, Albanian, Bulgarian, Russian, Ukrainian, and on and on and on. They varied in size in terms of the amount of money. Uh, some got 100 million, some got 30 million, some got 15 million, depending a little bit on size of the country and the um, political pull that they had in terms of getting it. The idea was you would invest, you would earn money. If there was money at the end of the program, you pay back the government. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So you can pay them back. It's not, not a freebie. It's a, it's a loan if you want to put it that way. And then the money remaining would be uh, a foundation in mm -hmm. perpetuity. That was the idea behind it. A little bit of the, like the German Marshall Fund, yeah. which is the sort of legacy of the Marshall Plan. It's neoliberalism, I mean, yeah. jumpstart. So that is the idea behind it. Poland was the first to liquidate its investments and ended up with a $240 million Polish Freedom Foundation in downtown Warsaw. Gotcha. Uh, run by Poles, and they have a board of directors, Polish-American, and they do Polish-American programs, Polish programs. Mm -hmm. The largest, if you can believe it, is the Bulgarian Foundation. Didn't know that. Uh, with about 480 million. Wow. The Russian Foundation uh, had about 160 million when I was recruited to be the, its first president. And so we, uh, unlike all the others, we were not necessarily overwhelmingly welcomed. We were mm -hmm. tolerated, but, but we were okay. We started in 2008. And for the first four or five years, things went very smoothly. Mm -hmm. We had exchange programs. We did programs for students interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, we had a program with judges who were very interested in specific aspects of American jurisprudence. And they would pay for it. The, the, the innovation to this program, the real innovation, and this is something I learned from my experience, was that we would do no program unless the Russians contributed money. And what was the reason behind that? Buy-in. Yeah. It's, it's their program as well. Mm -hmm. We wanted 50-50, but we would settle for less. Yeah, sure. In one case, we had the Russians contributing more than 50%. They really wanted the program. They knew what they wanted. And we helped facilitate a program by adding a little bit of money that they could not easily charge to their account. And do you guys have boots on the ground, you know, to walking through how to use this funds? Oh, we or? had an office in Moscow. I lived and worked in Moscow. Oh, I had okay. a staff in Moscow. We had a very tiny staff in the States, but we knew through my board and through other contacts, we would be able to set up meetings for them, uh, seminars, workshops, whatever. Uh, and that worked relative, well, it worked very well, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, we got lots of applications. We had students going to Purdue, to UCLA. It's interesting. We had a relationship between uh, St. Petersburg University and UCLA. They competed for this, so we selected them based on their desire to, to run the program. Uh, and the, uh, the St. Petersburg uh, uh, you know, rector and vice rector came to UCLA and they just fell in love with the weather. They, they thought, and they always scheduled meetings in winter. <laughs> From St. Always, <laughs> That's not hard always. Um, whereas, of course, they invited the UCLA mm -hmm. in May, June, you know, the, the months that, that were nice wow. there. So that went really well until the demonstrations of 2011 about the Duma elections mm -hmm. and then the demonstrations against Putin in his election 2012. And then the curtain started coming down. Yes. Uh, it came down relatively slowly. It did not come down right away. Right. The, the clouds gathered and they got darker and darker mm -hmm. as we went. But you could tell the mood was that way. Uh, the, 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 the example I use very often in, in talking about it is that I would have a breakfast meeting with the Minister of Education in, let's say, 2010, 2011 very happy with our programs. I would attend the meeting of university rectors. They were happy. They competed. They wanted to be part of this program. Right. Once Putin returned and he said in a press conference that these American institutions are scurrying around our universities, trying to find our most talented youth, 
bring them to the U.S., brainwash them. We don't, can't have that. The minute he said that, it's like, that's the end. Don't we had, that. Our applications went down to virtually to zero. People started being very cautious. In, if in the past they would come to our office for a meeting, they stopped coming to our office, I had to request to meet them at their office in a special room. And it was the Soviet Union all over again. Mm-hmm. In other words, you had people who don't introduce themselves, which is immediately suspect, right. usually security service. And they sit in the back of the room, and they take notes. And the poor Russian uh, chinovnik, you know, bureaucrats, terrified to say anything because mm-hmm. notes are being taken. God knows what they're going to write down there. And the mood changed completely. And you're just trying to give them money. It's not like you're buying state secrets or anything. I'm sorry? It's not like you're buying state secrets or anything. Of course, the contrary. Everything <laughs> we do is totally open and everything's on our website and everything is done in cooperation with a Russian institution. Sure. Um, I also attended something. This is this is an interesting point. There was something that started in the 1990s called um, a council of donors, where initially they were all Western donors, mm-hmm. American, German, British. And slowly but surely, Russians started joining. There were oligarch foundations set up. And by the time I came in 2008, uh, we were a member of it. We were kind of an important member because we supported the, the, the idea of a donor society. Right. You know, the independent, technically independent of the government. And um, that got closed down as well. Yeah. So it's everything just literally the, the end. And finally, in 2015, uh, we, along with a lot of other organizations, were put on an undesirable list. And that was the end of our presence. The foundation exists in the U.S. and now um, gives grants to American organizations. That's right. And so I'm curious what you have to say about, I think a big failure of the U.S. in at least the post-Soviet period was we were so obsessed with good relations with leaders. And, you know, Yeltsin and Clinton had this great relationship. I don't think we invested in institutions at all. We kind of just thought if we had diplomatic relations, they would sort of, you know, emerge this liberal order. Well, let me just take you back to some examples of things I think did work well. I love well. going back. Um, I was president of IREX for a number of years. IREX is uh, started as the first American educational scholarly exchange program in the United States. Its roots go back to 1958. Uh, formerly, it's a child of the Ford Foundation. Basically, the Ford Foundation created IREX, and IREX then went on to do things. And we had a number of grants and programs, State Department, USAID programs. Sure. Uh, and they were very much directed toward people on the ground. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one very vivid example, which I think was a, was a superb program. It was called IATP, Internet Access and Training Program. And the idea behind it was that we hired young Americans right out of college, uh, 22-year-olds, whatever, 23-year-olds, who would go out to these far outlying areas in Russia that had never seen the Internet, had never mm-hmm. seen a computer in most cases, certainly not the Internet, would connect up, usually in the town library. That was the usual place. It had to be a public access site. It wasn't in the director's office. It wasn't, you know, it was to be used by anyone who so wished. Uh, we bought the computers. Uh, sometimes the Soros Foundation would contribute the technical uh, equipment to connect it up. And these young Americans, speaking basic Russian, would live for half a year, a year in these towns, 
training young Russians to then take over that internet access. So, and this is mid-90s, right after the fall? Right? This would be uh, starting 93, 94, okay. all the way through until it no longer was needed. I mean, yes. by the late 90s, pretty much everyone. But I visited, I was at the opening in Kazan of the IATP Center, which was an, a city holiday. I mean, the mayor came out. I mean, this was big stuff. Sure. I was in Chernigov in Ukraine for the uh, opening of that. And the librarian told me that we had saved the library because because of that internet <laughs> access site, everyone was coming to the library. Inevitably, someone took books, but they just didn't come. Right. Um, and so there were programs like that. They weren't very big, but sure. they were there. There were a lot of programs having to do with training Russians to be um, um Economists to be uh, savvy about the way the world operated. There was the Muskie graduate program. There was the mm -hmm. undergraduate program. There was the high school program. I mean, there's a whole series of programs that were directed not at the elite, not at the government, but at the everyday people. They sure. were popular and they were had thousands of applicants. And uh, to this day, a number of people who speak exceptionally good English in Russia came through one of those programs. Wow. And so do you think, I mean, if the U.S. invested in those in sort of like a Marshall Plan type scope, well, do you think that's Well, the problem, I'll tell you the difference between that. And as I was there enough time, the Marshall Plan, remember, was a plan for war-torn Germany yeah. that had been defeated, knew that it had been defeated, and where there was a commonality of culture. So in other words, before the rise of Hitler, I mean, Germany, the United States, all the same Western culture, the same easy to Soviet Union was different. Right. Russians never considered themselves to be defeated. And this is a mistake that a lot of Americans make. If you push a Russian and say, well, what happened? They would say, we voluntarily decided that the Soviet system was unworkable, untenable, was driving us into the ground, and we stopped the Cold War under Gorbachev. That's their version of what happened. Okay. Whether or not that's true, and I think there's a lot of reasons to doubt some of the aspects, but the mentality was not of a defeated nation. Mm -hmm. It was of a nation that was going through a transition from one economic system to another. And so what we could do was limited in right. many ways by the reaction in there. As it is, we did a number of things that upset them. I'll, I'll give you a very vivid example. For example, the Muskie program. Uh, we told the dean and schools, we recruit, we choose. You have no say. That upset them to no end right. because in the Russian Soviet tradition, the rector or the dean or the director allows this student or that student to go on a That's program or not allow them. The idea that a student has the right on his own to apply to an organization and to go was unheard of in yeah. Soviet. And I remember the expression on the dean's face when we told them, you know, rather brusquely, maybe unfortunately so, that it's none of your business, not your money. <laughs> it developed a certain resentment as well. I imagine because we were not going in and and we had no real although there were attempts to do that and I think they actually redounded to 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 in a negative way because there was a USAID director um who shocked me when he said that you know what we really ought to be doing is is providing the textbooks for high school I thought, <laughs> that is going to go about as 
positively as, as Iran producing textbooks for Texas. I mean, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And yet there was this sense on some. So I think our, our paths were fairly limited. Yeah. I mean, we could do what we could do. Um, I'm not talking about the privatization issue. I'm talking about more people to people. But there were attempts to do mm-hmm. that. And sure. some of the programs were better. Some of the programs were worse. Peace Corps was popular in some areas, deeply unpopular right. in Russia. So it was considered an insult. Any tinge of sort of American paternalism was kind of considered. Whereas in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, yeah. the, to this day, it's very popular. Right. They love it. They, they like it. They're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So culturally, I think the Americans, as a general rule, misread the Russians to think that they were like the other sure. people of the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. And they're not. Right. Or not, you know, it wasn't Japan post World War II. This yeah. wasn't a crushed nation. This, not only that, there is a Russian political culture that is very different from the Polish political culture, Hungarian, Czech, and we misread it. So sure. I think that's kind of where some of the problems were. And that's kind of the classic question I think that comes up is: Is Russia like this because of Putin, or is Putin like this because of Russia? Is Russia would it be a different country if Gaidar was the president for the last twenty years? Or so you think there is sort of they're meeting in the middle, sort of. Well, they're different as in any big country. You have different strains. Right. Uh, certainly the strain that Putin has chosen is not the one that Medvedev tried to implement and not the one that Gaidar tried to implement. But I would say um, he probably tapped into the deepest strain, not the only strain, but the deepest strain. It's easier to motivate people, especially outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, with a kind of, we are a great nation. Right. You may have nothing in your house, but we're a great nation. Mm-hmm. People are scared of us. Uh, there is imperial nostalgia. This is the last sort of great European empire that right. kind of fell apart of just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of disorientation among a lot of people. How is it that we were so powerful and big and important and all of a sudden we weren't. And so he taps into that very, very effectively. Now, another leader could tap into some other strain of Russia. I'm not saying that that there aren't others. Uh, And the people who don't agree with Putin have tended to leave. So you have millions of people who've left Russia or you have the kind of uh, dissidents inside the country who... uh, you know, do what they need to do to get by, but wouldn't necessarily support, would welcome another strain of Russian, um, just like you know, U.S. has different political strains. I mean, most countries have different. Right. Uh, it's just that Putin very effectively and I think very shrewdly understood that appealing to this core base of imperial, nostalgic, orthodox, Mostly rural, small town gives him a core base that mm-hmm. he can rely on. How do you see that um, transferring to Russian youth? Because I know there are groups like Nashi and that are sort of. Well, they're just di- youth are youth. I mean, there's uh-huh. going to be there's also diversity there. There's going to be the, I'm sure, I'm not, the, the young person growing up in an international city like Moscow, to lesser extent St. Petersburg, is going to be fundamentally different from a young person growing up in some small outlying right. town where they've, you know, have never, uh, we brought uh, some, one of our programs was entirely focused on bringing people from the regions to this. They had never been to Moscow, they had been to St. Petersburg. Mm. And they were smart and they had learned English amazingly well. 
they had never seen most of their own country, right. let alone Europe, let alone the United States. It was just like totally beyond oh, their, their, their conception. Uh, so that it would depend which youth you're talking about. Right. Then there's the youth that uh, travels as well to do. You know, another w- way of looking at Russian, it's, it's Russian economists told me this in, in shorthand. It's a very shorthand thing. But he said that the Russian extracting economy selling oil, selling gas, selling timber, diamonds, what have you, essentially can support about 30 million people at the level of a European country, GDP huh. and, and, well, and salary. Problem is Russia has 110 million people outside of that 30 million. Right. So if you think of essentially two countries, just roughly speaking, you have the very wealthy and all the people who serve the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. The drivers, the cooks, the restaurants, the, the you know, all of that uh, uh, mm-hmm. as, as Russians say, the, the, and the wealthy and the ones who run the co- companies with very good salaries and the law firms and so forth. You have a mid-sized European country. I think the youth in that segment of the Russian population studies in Europe, studies in the United States. Uh, That's the liberal core. Well, they don't have to be liberal. They can mm-hmm. be very conservative, but they are worldly. Sure. Cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan. But they could be very conservative. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them necessarily liberal. Uh, but they are different from the 110 million Russia who still have no running water, right. have outhouses, have to bring water from the village well, have no dirt roads, roads wash out, they can't get from their village to, to, to a town. I mean, mm-hmm. that Russia is very different. And so you have the most stark inequality, probably in the world. One of the starkest inequalities in the mm-hmm. world would be in the Russian Federation. Right. And Moscow's the city of billionaires. And- exactly. Um, and so how and, do you see, sorry. Go yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I'm curious, why, how do you see I mean, Putin's been so shrewd in kind of displaying Russia as if it is this world economic power. But you look at their per capita GDP, it's maybe right below Portugal, I think. I would say the best example for anyone in Texas is the the GDP of Russia, Federation, is smaller than the GDP yeah. of Texas. Yeah. That's about two trillion, three trillion or something yeah, like that. Let's start with, with that very fact now. Yeah. Texas is integrated into the U.S. economy, so there are lots of reasons why. But if you think about it, there's more wealth produced, more services and, and right. wealth and products in Texas than all of Russia. Texas so, has 49 allies. Russia probably has yeah. zero. So that that sort of puts Russia in a certain perspective that I think is, is very important in terms of how well they play a weak hand. Mm-hmm. You can also then flip that around and say, look how well they play that weak hand. Right. Uh, they don't have a strong hand. They're not China. They're not producing. And yet they are present in space. They are present in, certainly in all kinds of nuclear weapons and so forth. Uh, they exert political influence. They are, you know, uh, fighting above their class. I mean, right. they're, 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 they're competing with, with much bigger players. And that takes a certain shrewdness. And that takes a country that has to be by definition authoritarian because you have mm-hmm. to really control your assets very well if you're going to play that game. Sure. So the authoritarian model for Russia is a very natural and very um, historically determined. I, I saw in today's Facebook, someone posted that the it's a dangerous most, way to start a sentence. The, the uh, law that was recently passed about 
being against the law to insult the president and the senior members of the government is virtually word for word for the law passed under Nicholas the first in 1836. And, and, and the Russians posted both and saying, mm-hmm. do you see a difference? <laughs> and other than a slightly more um, old fashioned use of words, mm-hmm. the meaning is identical to 1826, 2019. Mm-hmm. So there, there is, and Putin has said many times that Nicholas the first, Alexander the third, the most reactionary czars are his favorites. Yeah. <laughs> Until they get their legs blown off. But. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, anyway, that, uh, that that's kind of what what he's tapped into, and mm-hmm. I think he's done it very consciously. And I think probably from his point of view, very successful, very effectively. And so, I mean, do you see? I mean, everyone always asks, like, what is the next president going to look like? What it, I mean, if there's a liberal president post Putin, do we have some European power now where Russia used to be? Or, I mean, it seems like the tenor of this conversation. I would say, if you had have seen the movie Death of Stalin, yes. Chances are, were Putin to die of a heart attack today, you would have a replay of that movie. No one would touch him you, for a day. You would have oligarchs, primarily oligarchs, mm-hmm. uh, maneuvering for wealth position, who's going right. to be on top. Uh, not for ideological reasons, but for simply who's going to maintain wealth, who's going to end up in jail. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are really, and as the pie is shrinking, and the, and the Russian economy is not growing, no. So inevitably, that pie is either not getting larger or perhaps even shrinking. The battle at the top becomes nastier. Yeah. A growing pie kind of lets everybody sort of get their peace and and go quietly. Mm -hmm. This is going to be. So Putin is many ways a central figure that keeps that balance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say there's absolutely no reason to assume someone liberal is going to come along at all. Sooner there will be someone from within that group of inner, mostly former KGB, right. uh, oligarchs, semi-oligarchs, you know, Sechin, is he an oligarch? Is he, he used to be in government? Mm-hmm. Now. It's a very fluid back and forth. Right. The likelihood one of them would emerge uh, on top. And again, you would have the refiguration of, you know, kind of regaining a balance among the different elements. Right. Um, that's kind of the way it's operated. It's a kleptocratic system. Right. And there's no reason to assume that it would miraculously just change. Uh, They're fighting for their own property. The Soviet Union, the ideology died years earlier. It was just Mm -hmm. a matter of like a brittle uh, material. It just crumbled and nobody was there to support it. Nobody really cared about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is different. People have real money, real wealth, real position. They want to pass it on to their children. They want to secure that. And so they will fight Mm -hmm. for it. It's definitely not who we pretend to work. You pretend to pay us. No, no, the money is there and and, and plenty of money and uh, and they love to spend it and and they're not going to. uh, Then why won't they take your money? That's uh, a small and insignificant. Sure. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, and this is something that really I always try to emphasize when talking about Russia, is that unlike Western Europe, Russia did not emerge as a commercial country. In other words, it, it never put commercial interests ahead of political interests. Okay. So they will take, I mean, they like, everyone likes money, but they will take a monetary loss for an ideological position or for a political control. Okay. You're not going to seduce them by saying, well, you'll get a little bit more money. And if they, if they feel that that threatens something bigger, they will forego that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, what's our $10 million a year? It's, it's, it's pennies. I'll take it. 
but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, one uh, half a penny of oil or a quarter of a penny, and they will make up right. multiples of that. So it's it's pretty insignificant stuff. But they couldn't, if, if their ideology is, and it unfortunately is, that the U.S. is enemy number one, if every TV show, virtually every news show, presents the U.S. in a negative light, how can you then justify having a U.S.-Russia foundation operating on its territory? Right. They contradict each other. We oftentimes joke that if we were named something else, mm-hmm. the Joe Blow Foundation, yeah. they wouldn't pay any attention to us because it you know, didn't really mean anything. But because we were the U.S.-Russia Foundation, because our roots were in sort of going back to the 90s and USAID and the Freedom Support Act, we were an anomaly. We were something that was no longer tolerated, mm-hmm. I think, in the country. Right. So it's not what we did so much as what we stood for and our name that really was at the heart of it. Well, made you an easy target, I imagine. Pardon? It made you, made you an easy target, at least. Absolutely. And it, it kind of satisfied the bureaucrats who wanted to get rid of all kinds of American influence. Right. Uh, they, of course, made it seem as though we were dangerous that we would start another colored revolution, right. which of course is nonsense. Now they, we were the victims of a hacking job oh, really? well before the DNC uh, in 2012, uh, our emails, about 150 pages worth of private emails were put up on the internet with translation into Russian. And I may add very good translation. So if we had a typo, uh, they would know what, what, how, what the right word was. I mean, mm-hmm. it was done quite, quite well. Uh, and so I had the privilege of reading my own emails on, on the Internet in very elegant Russian. Uh, for example, I wrote uh, one of my board members asked me to write to Senator Luger's staff because they were coming to Moscow and to show them around and take them to dinner. Sure. It made it sound in the context that I was about to conspire with Senator Luger to you know, bring about major change in Russia. Um, And so that's the kind of stuff that Mm -hmm. that we were first subjected to. And then that in turn was used against us. You see, they are really, you know, and so that's how how it went. Yeah, I mean, the most innocuous email can sound awful in the wrong context. Professor Neuberger was emailing about a student getting a government grant. And uh, it was through his uh, professional email. His company got hacked. And our emails are out on WikiLeaks and her saying, like, no, we can get money for you, I promise. Like, I know these guys. <laughs> it looks like she's going to break someone's legs. When- oh, well, you can. it can be very, very, very much um, misquoted, misused, right. taken out of context. Very easy to do. When you see that kind of stuff going on, I mean, do you see America playing any role in a future Russian transition when they're, they've just had two decades of saying we're trying to subvert them? Uh, I don't see the U.S. Uh, playing any role, particularly because we inevitably on the side of Ukraine, we're on the side of Georgia, we're on the side of the Baltic states, entities that they, for various reasons, uh, see as either hostile or they would like to take over. Uh, No, I think um, the relationship with Russia is going to be a very limited one to specific issues. There's space, there's terrorism, there's nuclear weapons, there's the Arctic. I mean, they're going to be very discrete issues that inev or communicable diseases or whatever, something that crosses borders that will need to be dealt with. And if we're smart, we will deal with Russia on that specific topic and that topic alone. I don't think there's going to be, at least I can't see any kind of warming to, to it. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, 
a perfectly correct relationship. Doesn't have to be a, a hostile one necessarily, right. but a correct one, I think, is is fine. But sweeping cooperation does not uh, seem likely. No, I don't think so. And a lot depends on what happens in Ukraine, in Georgia. Right. Uh, if we can help Ukraine become a more stable country, mm-hmm. it will be good for us, but it will strain right. because Russia's whole philosophy or its approach is to weaken, not necessarily take over Ukraine, but make sure it's a failed state. Mm-hmm. The more it can be a failed state, the better, the better, because then they can point to Ukraine and say, you don't want to be like them. You want to be like us. We're stable. We're calm. We're, we, we, we do things the way they should be done. Mm-hmm. Look at what's happening next door. On the contrary, if Ukraine were to go and become relatively successful, it would be an example for what the Russians could do. Right. So, so that's a those are the key, I think, issues. And that's horribly complicated by Crimea, which is pointing to this failed state, but also they just removed a huge voter block for elections in a month. So, well, you know, it's interesting to see how you, Crimea is going to play out in Russian right. politics because I think initially there was an outburst. I was in the country; I was living in the country. People who I thought were relatively reasonable people were saying very ecstatically unreasonable things. I mean, I, I, I was surprised by the kind of um, patriotism slash almost um, in-your-face anger against, mm-hmm. you know, this is our prerogative, this is our right. I, I explained to one very thoughtful Russian who asked me, why is the U.S. against, you know, Russia taking over Crimea? And I explained to him that the U.S. is neither for nor against. The U.S. is for process. If you had set up a process, I said, the way Czechoslovakia set up a process to split that took well over a year, if not two years, where you negotiated issues, where you had open and free elections, if that process had been started and had been done with international involvement and observers, and that process took a year, year and a half, and you figured out who owned what and what needed to be returned and how the split would happen, so the U.S. couldn't care less whether Crimea is in Ukraine or it's in Russia or it's set independent. What the U.S. cares about, what any Western country would care about is process. Because that ensures a legality, that ensures a stability, that ensures a predictability. Right. Taking over with the green men and then lying about it for a few days does not instill confidence in anything. Mm-hmm. He accepted that. He said, you know, he had never thought of it. <laughs> And I, I explained to him that Americans in particular are very process oriented. For us, the number one thing to establish is a process. Right. Because the belief is that process will bring us to a reasonable result. If you don't have process, then the loudest person screaming tries to, to win the day. Right. And so I think, and, and in the Russian political context, those kinds of things are very European, very Western, not necessarily ones that they naturally would go toward. Right. So that's why something like the EU is so frightening to them. Someone tried to initiate these processes, but that's kind of not well, how they it's do a, things. It's a different mental framework to dealing with problems. Mm-hmm. If you're an authoritarian state, you go to the father figure to solve your problem. Yeah. If you're a democracy, you inevitably have to deal with a process. What is legislation? What is Congress? It's a process. It's a way of adjudicating. It's a way of, of, and then you have the whole, all the appeal process in court. It's all very process-oriented society. Russia is not a process-oriented society. And I think that's where, where a lot of the issues, 
where, where just Russians and Americans or Russians and, and Europeans go past each other. Miles away. And so, I mean, by the tenor of your thoughts, you don't see reforms like this happening under Putin because that's where there's he no, gets his strength, right? There's no, no reason for him to do anything other than continue on his path. And, of course, the idea is that uh, when an authoritarian figure is in power, he's either in power or in jail. I mean, there's very little in between. Mm-hmm. Now, you could transition the way Yeltsin did, which was an agreement that he would relinquish given his health and his, he and his family would not be prosecuted. That was a, that's the way authoritarian regimes also end. Mm-hmm. Conceivably, if Putin stays there long enough and gets to a point in his life where he feels for health reasons or whatever other reasons, he could negotiate a transition out. My Russian friends tell me that the, the transition is going to be to a role above president, kind of a, father of the nation kind okay, of role gotcha. and that a president would be someone from within that circle, mm-hmm. but he would be for life in this kind of, should Belarus mm-hmm. and Russia come together as some have speculated. As well, not their buddies blood, again, right? Then you could have someone over both as a kind of supreme leader. Maybe that's the right term. I think they've done leader. that before. And then you would have, you know, presidents of perspective. But uh, short of that, it would be a negotiated, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, See, agreement that he could go to Sochi and live his I life in Sochi say, hey, and nobody would. So there's a chance he joins like Gorbachev and uh, Dacha the rest of his life or. Well, Gorbachev has actually done quite well considering how hated he is yeah. uh, in the country. He's, mm-hmm. he's managed to have his little foundation and uh, be quite active. He's 89 or 90, right. I, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, but uh, he's also seen as a, as a, as a loser and, mm-hmm. and is a very negative figure in Russian history. Putin wants to go down as a, as a positive, major, important figure. And so um, I, I'm sure there are people in the Kremlin thinking this out, what to do in 2024. Right. I know, what to transition to what. There was a recent article by Mr. Surkov, who was the man sure. who supposedly coined the term managed democracy or sovereign democracy, and uh, very cynical uh, article. We mm-hmm. don't care about democracy. We are upfront. The West is hypocritical. They pretend to have elections. We don't even pretend. We know they're not elections. Very curious, curious piece. But I think there's all, he and others are going to be maneuvering for some kind of proper role for this kind of figure mm-hmm. to remain um, for at least for as long as he can. Yeah, I think it was Erdogan who said, like, democracy is a bus and I'll get off whenever I pull the lever or something along those lines. So we'll we'll see how that um, how that develops. But I think that's kind of where where I see it going. Sure. Well, thank you. been very generous with your time. I usually ask people at the end, you mentioned Surkov, um, what is sort of your last favorite thing that you've read and that you've seen that you watched? It could be related to Russia. It could be a movie. Um, just maybe further reading for the audience or. Um, well, if it's in Russian, um, let me think. Uh, well, the Surkov piece is worth reading, not because I think he's necessarily a clairvoyant uh, political thinker, because I think he's throwing into the mix what uh, people would um, are certainly contemplating and sort of seeing how it plays out. But I would, I would suggest something a, a little bit different. Um, I would say if you want to understand today's Russia, study Russian history. Try. And uh, I think that um, 
probably a figure like Stalin. Why has Stalin come back? Mm -hmm. Yesterday or day before was his birthday. Uh, people were placing flowers on his grave. It's the day of his death, Pardon? March 5th, yeah, the day of yeah, his death. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something that wouldn't have necessarily happened in the Soviet period. Right. Soviets were very careful not to bring stuff. Why is he brought back? What is he, what is that saying about today's Russia? When I was living in, in Russia, I went to one of the May Day parades and I saw people carrying icons of Stalin. I was so disgusted I went home. I just couldn't stand it. But, but I saw it personally. I saw it with my own eyes. I mean, somebody who equals, if not exceeds Hitler in terms of, of, of atrocities committed. Sure. No Russian family is without someone who suffered. And yet, why is he back? What does that tell us about the country? And, and mm -hmm. I think, uh, read Steve Kotkin's yeah. biography of, of Stalin. Mm -hmm. It was one place. Very, very useful, I think, for understanding today's Russia. Look at figures like Alexander III and Nicholas I. Why is Putin bringing them back in some way? What, what mm -hmm. is that saying about today's Russia? I think it would be very interesting. Yeah. Read conservative uh, Russian thinkers. They're much more important than, than, right. than the liberals. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you very much. It's been okay. great. My pleasure. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.